Christian bookstores uh, don't typically make much money from selling Christian books. Uh, They make money from selling all the Christian merchandise, uh, coffee mugs and calendars, T-shirts and jewellery, little figurines and ornaments, photo frames, kitchen cutting boards, cushions, bath towels. If you can put a picture on it and importantly some words from the Bible, it can be Christianized and it can be sold. Uh, There are sentences in the Bible that just seem to have been written for the makers of crockery and tea towels. Uh, There are pearls of wisdom in the Bible that sort of get plucked out and plastered all over wall hangings and posters. There are phrases in the Bible that just scream out for a picture of a waterfall or a sunrise or footprints on the beach. Our passage this morning happens to have two of these devotional nuggets uh, so often hand-carved into wood or leather. Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything but by prayer of the peace of God. Uh, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, etc., etc., think about such things. And, and we can see why these bullets of wisdom are highlighted and promoted. They are the sort of Bible verses that are profitably written on a small card, turned into a memory verse, put into your heart, treasured away, used for guidance and encouragement. But the Apostle Paul didn't pen these words as standalone fragments. He didn't write them as little vitamin capsules for Christians. Uh, These sentences come in a context. They are part of the natural flow of this whole letter that he's written to the Philippians. And the only proper way to understand them is to put them back in their context, listening and learning from all that the Apostle is writing. And context is very important when it comes to understanding famous phrases. Take, for example, a famous phrase. You've heard it all before. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Uh, It might surprise you, but Juliet is not looking for Romeo. She isn't asking where he is. Romeo isn't hiding away somewhere and she's trying to find him. Act 2, scene 2. Romeo and Juliet are in an orchard. They are talking together. When Juliet, in the middle of the conversation, says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? In context, you can see that what she is talking about is why. Why is Romeo who he is? Why does the man she loves happen to be an enemy Montague when she is a Capulet? In context, you can see that this this famous phrase is not a where question, it's a why question. But you only get that if you read it in context. How many times have you wandered around and you chucked out that phrase as you looked for somebody? Wherefore art thou? No, 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 that's not what it means. How much more then, when the words come from the Bible, when they are God's words, how much more important is it for us to be clear about their meaning? So that's what we're going to try and do this morning. Now the big context of the letter, as we've worked our way through it, is the Apostle Paul languishing in prison, waiting for his case in Rome to be heard by Caesar. Uh, Paul has been in this predicament for two or three years and the Philippians have been generous. 
They've been generous supporters. They've sent Epaphroditus to Rome with a bag of money to take care of Paul's needs in prison. And Epaphroditus has been sent back to Philippi by Paul with this letter that we're reading. It's a letter of thanks, but it's more than just Paul's gratitude. The Apostle Paul wants to urge the Philippian church and all churches He wants to urge the Philippian church, who've partnered with Paul for more than a decade, he's urging them to press on in their gospel ministry. In many ways, the apostle is is passing on the baton to the Philippians. Paul is entrusting the ongoing work of spreading the gospel into their hands. And we saw the sort of key verses, chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Uh, For the Philippians to commit themselves uh, even more deeply to gospel work, to go from being a good church to being a great church, Paul says that they'll need two important things that we've looked at before. They need to be united as a congregation in order to do the work, and they'll need to be willing to stand firm to endure in the face of opposition. And the meat of the letter has been about these two issues. Chapter 2 focused on their unity in order to be effective in gospel ministry, and chapter 3 focused on standing firm in order to be faithful to the gospel. Which brings us to the closing chapter, chapter 4, where Paul draws his themes together and gives the Philippians and practical examples of how they can be begin to dedicate themselves to the cause of the gospel. And the thrust of Paul's practical application is captured in an idea that's run all the way through this letter. Have the same mind. Be of one mind. Think the same way. Uh, early in the letter, we've, he said, make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Well, chapter 3, all of us then who are mature should think this way. And in our passage this morning, all the three areas of application that Paul makes, I think, have to do with right thinking. Uh, Verse 2, be of the same mind. Verse 6, don't be anxious, that is, don't think wrongly about your circumstances. And verse 8, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, etc., think about such things. Uh, Paul is pressing home right thinking as we think about our relationships with one another as believers, right thinking as we, we see, understand how God is at work in the world, and right thinking about the gospel itself. So well, let's look at each of those in turn. Uh, firstly, right thinking about relationships between believers means having the same mind. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, Can you have imagined what it would have been like on that first Sunday after 
uh, Epaphroditus has arrived back at Philippi with Paul's letter. Uh, There is the church gathered in Lydia's home. People are sitting in their usual spots. They did it back then. You do it now. Uh, They've sung together. They've prayed together. And now one of the elders is going to read out to the whole church Paul's letter. It takes about 15 minutes to read. And then he begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi. That's us. And now... uh, with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they read on about Paul's prayers for them and Paul's trials in Rome. And, oh, yeah, 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 we need to be united, take the gospel forward together. Oh, what a wonderful reminder from chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus humbling himself and being exalted. Hey, great news. Timothy's coming. He's going to visit Epaphroditus. He was awesome. He's made us proud. Excellent. Hmm. Chapter 3, we do need to watch out for false teaching. We need to press on in Christ. Wow, we are citizens of heaven. What a great encouragement. Yeah, let's stand firm in the Lord. And then from the front of the church, the elder reads out Paul's words about Yodia and Syntyche. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What if the name that was read out was your name? in front of the whole congregation. Not, not, not praise like Timothy and Epaphroditus, but correction. Ouch. What did these women do that warranted that sort of treatment? Well, I've had quite a week with Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, I've worked my way through a pile of commentaries, listened to a good number of online preachers talking about these two ladies. For some of the commentators, this sentence is the very heart of the letter. Everything else in the letter is just a warm-up and a lead-in to tackling the huge divisive fault line running through the Philippian church because of these two women. They say... Paul has had them in his sights all along and now he names these wicked troublemakers who are crippling the church at Philippi. They are the ones with selfish ambition and vain conceit in chapter 2. They are the ones who have opened the door to the false teachers that we read about in chapter 3. The church at Philippi is desperately fractured and divided and these women are at the epicentre of the problem. Uh, some of the commentators are quite, take quite a dark view of uh, Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, others take a kind of more moderate approach. This is probably the majority. Something along the lines of, look, every church has people who are bickering and squabbling about this or that with each other. I mean, these two women are a source of quarrelling at Philippi. And look, their fractured relationship, it's it's distracting and diverting the church. And so the application is, look, we all need the skills to admit our faults, confess our sins. We need to be reconciled to one another. Come on, you two, just stop it. Cut it out. Learn from these ladies. Stop doing it. You know we all do it. Put aside your selfish and petty fighting and just let's get on with one another. Now, of course, that is biblical wisdom. That stuff does happen in churches. But the big question is, is that's what's happening in Philippi? Uh, If we're going to do our best with these verses, we, we need to read them carefully. See, the only window we have back into that situation is this one verse. 
I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. The Apostle Paul doesn't tell us anything else about the issue between them. He doesn't pick a side. He doesn't say one is right and the other is wrong. He doesn't tell them off for quarreling or fighting. He doesn't call them to stop sinning. All he does is to ask them, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now that's something that he's called the whole Philippian church to uh, that we've seen back in chapter 2. So how big is the problem then between these two women? Well, it's big enough for the Apostle Paul to have heard about it in Rome. It's big enough for the Apostle Paul to include a response in his letter to the church. It's big enough for Paul not to have kind of approached the matter indirectly, you know, or anonymously, you know, those people who are having a problem, we all know. No, no, he, it's big enough that he names the two individuals. In fact, it's so big that Paul doesn't even need to explain the problem because everyone there and then already knew all about it, which unfortunately means he doesn't write anything down, so we don't know what it is. But if you were there, everybody knew what the issue was. And it would seem that it's become uh, entrenched between these two ladies. Neither is budging. And so Paul says that they need the help of a mediator. Someone who was unnamed and unknown to us, but someone obviously, obvious to all the people there, they know who it is. Verse 3, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, whoever that happens to be, but everybody there knew, help these women. And then Paul adds another element for us to think about, his glowing commendation of these women. Help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Uh, Paul doesn't lump these women into a list of well-known troublemakers or gospel turncoats. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul is absolutely sure about Yodi and Syntyche as real and genuine Christian sisters. Their names are written in the book of life. Uh, Paul says... They've contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. That is, they've strived together with Paul for the faith of the gospel, which is the very thing he's urging the Philippians to do in chapter 1, verse 27. In other words, apart from this issue between the two women, which we don't know anything about, these ladies are model gospel workers who have a faithful track record as part of Paul's team of co-workers. What are we to make of these women uh, that Paul's plea is that they be of the same mind? There is an issue between them, and yet Paul can speak of them in such glowing terms. The commentators were useless. Here's my best guess. I think we have two women who are passionate for gospel ministry, but have each landed on different strategies for seeing the gospel go forward. They both want something good, but each of them uh, thinks that their own approach is better than the others. She's advocating for something good, but my approach is better. It would be a mistake to do things her way. For the sake of the gospel, do it my way. Perhaps you remember in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they went on a first missionary journey. And they took with them 
John Mark. And they went on their missionary journey and partway through that journey, John Mark abandoned them. He went back home. So when they go on their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are planning to go again. Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. Paul says, no, he abandoned us last time. Look, gospel ministry is too difficult. We can't rely on him. No, let's give him another chance. They arrived at a position that they could not agree. Conveniently for them, they could just choose other people and off they went. And we read the story and go, wonderful, gospel work multiplied. What would it be like if Paul and Barnabas and their kind of situation was stuck in a church? In other words, they didn't move off somewhere else. They had to keep persevering together. Perhaps this is something like that. And the Apostle Paul says, being of the same mind, thinking the same way, being united is more important than the best gospel strategy. Uh, Sometimes enthusiastic, skilled, experienced Christians can feel like a congregation or a group of Christians is too slow, too, too distracted, too soft. Strong Christians can kind of chafe that oh, they're being dragged back by the slow ones. We need to be united. We need to have the same mind. The strong, the adventurous, need to be committed to the slow so that we can both go on together. Church life, there are the issues that we agree on together. The gospel, who the Lord Jesus is. Then there's the secondary issues that make churches different, uh, different Baptist, Presbyterian. Look, there's just things we can't do in the same place. And then there's a third levels of issues that perhaps we would disagree with one another, but we could still get on. Women should do more or less in church. We should be more or less charismatic. Uh, we should be more or less this other issue. Uh, often, We'll have strong views. No, this is the right way for the gospel. No, this is the right way for the gospel. Can we be united over and above those issues? Or will those things be the the thing that uh, causes us actually to leave? That's my experience. Most people give up. Rather than unity, they choose their issue and they'll go to another church. I think Paul would say, be of the same mind park your issues. That's what I think this is about. I could be wrong. You come and tell me about it afterwards. I think Paul says being of the same mind, being united together is more important than having the best gospel strategy. And Paul has consistently argued in this letter that the best strategy for advancing the gospel is being united, having the same mind as a congregation. Second point. Uh, Right thinking about how God is at work means no need for anxiety, rather a place for prayer and peace. Uh, Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Uh, Rejoicing is again a big theme in this letter, but it's interesting the context uh, where Paul talks about rejoicing. Uh, Chapter 1, Paul rejoiced while hostile gospel preachers tried to cause him trouble. Uh, Chapter 2, Paul rejoiced as he faced the prospect of being martyred. 
Chapter 3, Paul rejoiced as he warned about false teachers with a false gospel. And now in chapter 4, Paul is calling the believers to rejoice. And in one sentence later, he's going to talk about feeling anxious and worried. If we understand Paul in this letter, Christian rejoicing isn't about experiencing happy circumstances that naturally put a smile on our face. No, Christian rejoicing is about remembering Christ, remembering that through the gospel I've been forgiven and restored, remembering that our citizenship is secure and safe and heaven, all the things that go with the gospel, remembering all of that, and with all of that in mind, now we look at our painful or testing circumstances and supernaturally find a smile on our face. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Uh, in this letter, the Paul calls believers to stand firm, to strive together for the, in the face of uh, gospel opposition without being frightened. Face gospel opponents and foes. Cope with hostility and aggression. To do that is not easy. Will I stand firm or will I give way? What consequences will I have to suffer because I've stood firm? What implications for my family or friends? And worry and anxiety are natural reactions when there's doubt and uncertainty. But verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, at its core, for the Christian anxiety is mistaken and misguided thinking about the world. Uh, can bad and unpleasant and uncomfortable things happen to me and you? Oh, yes, they can. Do you have any certainty that hardship and trial and pain will not come your way? No, you don't. But brothers and sisters in Christ, there's more to think about than potential grief or sadness. See, there's a bigger reality to grasp and grab hold of. The Lord is near. You take hold of that reference as uh, time or distance. Uh, not long, long to go until the Lord Jesus returns and reorders this world. And the Lord is not distant or far away. He's so near that all you need to do is whisper and he hears you. And the Lord is near so that he can act. Just tell him what you need. In every situation of opposition, in every situation of hostility towards the gospel, when we are fearful or uncertain about the future, speak the words. Ask for his help. Present your request to God. And the promise is that when we do that, our anxiety will be replaced with peace. The peace of God. The sort of peace that would allow the Apostle Paul to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, that is peace which transcends understanding. It's not a rational peace. It's peace that makes sense when you remember Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in control of everything. That's a peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is, as we saw in chapter 3, if we want to be safe in the Christian life, we want to be mature, if we want to stand firm, we'll need to pray. Right thinking about how God is at work means there's no need for anxiety. 
Right thinking about God at work in the world means that we know who to ask for help. Now these verses about anxiety and prayer and peace have a context. And when faced with apprehension and worry because of gospel opponents, we are directed to pray. And please see that the first context for that prayer is congregational. Paul is writing to a church and telling the church to pray. Uh, Paul is writing to a church and urging them to be united. And one of the ways and places that we are united as we, is as we corporately pray. Uh, we join together in prayer here every Sunday. We collectively put aside our anxiety and together we put our trust in God. Uh, we pray together each Sunday and we are looking for God to bring his peace to bear on us as a church. When we pray each Sunday, we're asking God for strength and wisdom that we need to understand what is happening in our world, to remember that he is in control. Now, can these verses be applied to your personal life, that when you face uh, that spark of anxiety? Of course they can. Pray about your health issues, pray for your children, pray through your work problems. By all means, let's set our concerns before God in prayer. Third, uh, right thinking about the gospel will unite us and keep us standing firm. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Again, we want to put these words back into the context of this letter. Right thinking has been an important theme all through this letter. That is right thinking about the gospel and the good news of Jesus going out into all the world. And again, let's start with the corporate application. See, Paul is telling the whole church to think about whatever is true, noble, pure, lovely, right, admirable, excellent and praiseworthy. How does the whole church think about such things? Well, these things are what we talk about. Over coffee. This is what we discuss with one another. These things inform our growth groups and they shape our, our, our meetings together. These things will direct the content of our services and our sermons and our songs. What is it about the gospel that's true and noble? What is it about Christ that's right and pure and lovely? What is it about the family of God that's admirable and excellent or praiseworthy? Well, let's focus our attention on these things let's these things be the conversations that we have with one another and as we've already seen in this letter paul encourages believers to look and benefit from good models of gospel focused lives including his own verse 9 whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put it into practice and the god of peace will be with you is there two powerful effects of directing our corporate thinking towards the, the virtues and benefits of the gospel. Now, firstly, we'll be thinking about what unites us together with Christ. The same glorious gospel that saved you, saved me and saved that person. The same good news tells all believers that we are all citizens of heaven. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. See, right thinking about the gospel unites us as a church. 
And secondly, right thinking about the gospel keeps us safe from gospel distortions, keeps us standing firm against gospel opponents. It's as we remind ourselves again and again of the the goodness of the good news, that will keep us standing firm. Why would I go to something else that's not as good as that? And that will keep us telling other people about the good news. As we think and talk about the, the people whose gospel lives are pure and lovely, admirable, excellent and praiseworthy, their examples will keep us safe and encourage us to grow into maturity. And that's how peace will come to us as a congregation. Right thinking about the gospel will unite us and keep us standing firm. Uh, Our passage this morning contains a challenging call for reconciliation and having the same mind. contains some powerful words of encouragement to not be anxious but to pray and look for God's peace. Some, some strong exhortations to think good thoughts, to think about the best things. As wonderful as those Bible gold nuggets are plucked out and printed on a bookmark, I hope as we've looked at them in the context of the letter, they are richer and deeper. See, as Paul winds up uh, his letter, he's taking the opportunity to press home the importance of our right thinking together as a church. We're to be fostering relationships together, prioritizing being of the same mind, facing our anxieties together as a church, through prayer, receiving God's peace, focusing our attention on those things and those people that are excellent and praiseworthy in the gospel. That's how we go from being a good church to being a great church, a church united in the work of the gospel a church standing firm in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise. You are the great God who hears our prayers. No need for anxiety or uncertainty. You hear and answer. Bless us as a church with peace. Help us to be those who speak of what is good and true and right and noble that we might experience peace through that and help us to find peace with one another as we pursue the same mind in the Lord. Help us to move from being a good church to being a great gospel church that works hard for the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray. Amen.